Hey, welcome to ACF Church, and we're so glad that you're with us watching this message online. And our hope is that it would encourage you to be more like Jesus and walk closely with Him as an apprentice of Christ. And our hope is to give away all of these resources for free as much as possible. It takes a lot of time and energy and people to make that happen. And if you'd like to support the mission of God financially for ACF Church, you can go to acfak.org and you can give there. Now enjoy the Word of God proclaimed. They thought they were alone, but they were wrong. What is that? Uh, it's probably nothing. Let's make a sandwich. That was definitely something. There's only one man who could save them. Open up, please! Open up! There's no escaping it, but there's got to be a way. It's here. Well, what's that one? That's mine. What do you do when you see something? Don't miss. Hunted. Oh my gosh. I'm not really sure how you follow that. Like that is crazy. Um, but I highly recommend if you have never used a flamethrower, go get one and use one. <laughs> it will entertain you for a long time. Um, also good Christmas gifts for your friends. Just say <laughs> My name is Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at ACF Church and we are on week four of a series we're calling Hunted, and it's a series where we're looking at the devil. And uh, we, the first week we talked about that there is a hunter, like there is uh, uh, a being out there whose desire is to deceive us so that we will not connect with the God who created us, that it's real. It's not just a cartoon caricature to keep us distracted. It's not just an idea out there, but there is a real being uh, who is dead set on destroying our lives. Uh, the, the next thing we learned uh, the week after that is he wants to deceive us. That's his native tongue. That's what he speaks, lies and deception. And he's very good at it. He's a very intelligent creature, and he wants us to do nothing about the truth, to be nothing about truth here. Um, we also learned that we can resist him through gospel-centered relationships, that when we are walking with other people who can help give us strength and support, that we are able to stand against him and that that can be a really good tactic uh, to resist what he wants to do in the destruction of our lives. And today we're gonna find out, and I wanna look at, that the battle starts long before the test, that we are all gonna face tests in our lives. We're gonna face challenges, things that are gonna really show us who we are inside, things that are, are choices that we're gonna be able to make, uh, good or bad. And, but the battle starts long before we get to that point. A lot of times we focus on, on game day, for instance, but we forget about the practice and the conditioning that need to go into preparing for that game day. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, which was a long time ago, uh, my I have an older brother who's 11 months older than me, and so we fought all the time, and we love each other dearly, but man, we, yeah, we also fight. And my brother and I and my family went up, we were living in Tucson, we drove up to the Grand Canyon, and I remember 
pulling up, and this was back before they had any kind of barriers at the edge of the canyon, but my, my dad parks the car, the door opens, and my brother is gone, beeline for the edge of the canyon, and grabs the, there's a little wiry fence at the very edge, and he grabs that and does a spin around it. Um, luckily, mom was right behind him uh, to pull him back from the edge. He had no idea of the danger that he might have been in uh, with a mile drop below him. Uh, we do that, don't we? We run right towards the edge. We see an edge. We know that there may be something that should keep us back from that, and yet we're still just drawn to it for some reason. Adam and Eve back in the garden, they have, they have this huge garden. No one's sure how big it is, but I'm guessing it's bigger than the little tiny garden that you know, I play at in, in my backyard. Uh, they, they estimate probably hundreds or thousands of square miles uh, was this, this large garden where they had to tend and had to live. And yet, for some reason, they hung out near a tree, the only tree they were told not to touch, right up to the edge, even though they know that they shouldn't have been there, right? King David, as a king of Israel, he would have written the law out by hand before, as becoming king. So he knew that as a married man, having an affair with a married woman was wrong, and then premeditating his, the murder of his mistress's uh, husband was also wrong. He knew that going into it, but yet what did he do? Right up to the edge and fell over. What is it that fascinates us about the edges? We get a limit in our lives and we wanna run right at it. We wanna ride all the way up to it to see how close we can get. And we think we're gonna be the ones are gonna figure out a way to stay up on the cliff and not fall over the edge. If you don't believe me, Uh, Here's a homework assignment. Go find, how many of you have kids? Show of hands, how many of you have kids? I have kids, you know that. I I talk about a lot. Uh, Go go find a four-year-old. If you don't have a four-year-old, you can borrow mine. (laughs) As long as you want to take that child. (laughs) If you're not married and you're like, I don't have kids, this doesn't relate to me at all. When you get married, wait four years and then do this experiment. Go get a cookie. It doesn't matter what kind of cookie. It really doesn't. Go into your kitchen with your four-year-old, put it on the counter, tell him don't touch the cookie, and then walk out of the room. I don't have a lot of confidence that's going to make it five minutes, let alone an hour or longer. That cookie's gone. You just say goodbye to it. You'll never see it again. The four-year-old will have no idea with chocolate all over their face where that cookie went. It's just, it's the way we are, right? And when I was a teenager, when I had an 11 p.m. curfew, do you know what time the door was opening at my parents' house? 10.59 and 59 seconds. And if I could have gone into the hundreds of, or thousands of seconds, I would have gone even closer because I want the edge. I want to live up to that edge. Uh, someone once told me, give me a, 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 a deadline up against which I can procrastinate, right? Another edge, like I could fall off. This is a work assignment, but I'm gonna wait till the last minute to do it because I have a deadline. So why would I wanna waste time right now preparing and getting it done? Back in in the day, Cain and Abel, if you remember the story, we have Cain uh, who grew produce and we have Abel who was uh, raised livestock, right? And so they're brothers and they bring offerings to God. And God accepts Abel's offering of the livestock, and he rejects Cain's offering. And Cain gets really hurt about this and really jealous and upset uh, at his brother. 
and the Lord God himself, the creator of heaven and earth and the universe, right, comes to Cain and says, Cain, back away from the edge. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to destroy you. You need to master it. In other words, time out, Cain. You're on the edge. You're getting ready to make a decision that is going to be very bad for you. And what does Cain do? He kills his brother. He gets a warning and yet still crosses over the the boundary, right? And we're like this. And I don't know why we're all like this, but we like that edge. And we like, instead of staying back from the edge, we like to run right up to it. And if we wanted to go through scripture, we could go through example after example of people that were uh, aware of the edge and still went up to the edge and fell over. But today I want to look at uh, other examples in Scripture of people that stayed back from the edge. And I want to look at what kept them back from the edge. And we'll look at one of my favorite. It's found in the book of Daniel. And it's in the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 3. And so here's the story. To give you some background. So this is, uh, Daniel takes place in the Babylonian Empire. So the The nation of Israel has been punished by God for constantly following other gods and not obeying God and just basically adopting all the cultural ways of the the countries around them after warning, after warning, after warning. Finally, the nation has fallen. They've been taken captive. And so those who were living in Jerusalem, the leaders, the the political, um, you know, the the smart people of of the time were all taken into captivity into Babylon and they get the ones who had skills to offer, the, the educated and the well-off, they were re-educated. And so we, we pick up this story where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we have any VeggieTale fans in the room? Rakshak and Benny. I can't read this story without hearing Rakshak and Benny um, and the bunny song in the background. So but this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're three uh, Jewish men who were taken from Jerusalem 1,600 miles away to Babylon, which is now modern-day Iraq. It's right almost dead center. If you put a pen, almost dead center. Not quite, but it's close. And they're part of a re-education process, and then they get put into service. And that was kind of the Babylonian way, was they would overtake other countries, overtake over other nations, and then they would educate them and allow them to, to be part of it. So they, they viewed that as a strength of their culture. And they really didn't care if you brought your other gods in with you as long as you honored and respected their gods, uh, the gods who they believed had given them victory, give them food, give them fertility, all those things. They didn't care if you brought in your own. Um, and so we pick up the story in chapter 3 when King Nebuchadnezzar, he puts up this giant image, um, a statue, and it says uh, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits in breadth, it was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So what's a cubit? Cubit's 18 inches, give or take. And so this image was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. And it says it was made of gold. And some people say it was solid gold. Some people say it was probably more likely a wood structure that had gold plates put on it, not like real thin gold plating that we might do for like, you know, decorations for a party or something, but like legit solid gold um, on the outside. Either way, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, it's a pretty impressive image. We have no idea what the image was. It could have been King Nebuchadnezzar. It could have been one of his gods. Uh, it could have just been, who knows, a uh, picture of just a man. What, whatever it is, though, 
he orders that everybody come. So he puts this image up, and the next thing he does as a show of um, unity with the different leaders, he has all the political leaders, all of the, the judges, all of the, uh, anybody who is important at all in the nation of Babylon. He brings them in, and he says, I want to see your allegiance to me, so we're going to bow down to this image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not into this. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, if, you, if whoever doesn't bow down uh, will be thrown into a fiery furnace. And I always used to think it was like a, I think of a little potter's kiln. I don't know if you, like, if you've ever, like, as a kid, you, like, maybe spun a little wheel and you made a little cup and then you put it in this kiln and it heated it, right? And the thing is about as big as, like, a college dorm refrigerator. Well, these were, like, building size things, like, as big as, you know, we have a, a two-story house and it's, that size is what we're, it, I think we're, we're dealing with here. They were dealing and, and making, uh, burning down uh, lime so that they could use for other purposes. And so they had a, a fire going in this process. And so this would have been something people would fit in rather nicely. And so they have the threat of, if you don't bow down and show me your allegiance, because this is really a political statement, maybe even more than a religious statement, but he wants to know who's, who's with him. And so he has this image and he says, you're going to bow down to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being um, devout Jewish uh, men from Jerusalem do not bow down. And so then we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and this is their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So he gives them one last chance to bow down to this image. Like maybe you didn't hear, maybe you don't quite understand, like we're cool with your Jewish God, but you, you need to bow down to this because um, it's an order. And they basically say, we don't even need to answer you in this. Like, and I don't think what they're doing is disrespectful. What they're saying is it's from a position of confidence that they're, they're speaking to him. And they're saying, we're not going to change our mind no matter what you threaten us with. We're going to not bow down to this image because that would be offensive to our God. No matter what the, what the penalty, whether God, our God is, let it be known, our God can save us. We know that. We believe that. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. So it's, they're, they're firm, and that's what they're saying to him. is like, no matter what you do, you know, there's no coercion that, that is going to make us change our mind. And so let's, let's get on with it, is what they're saying. So the story goes on, and they get thrown into the furnace. And uh, if you remember, they basically are in the furnace and not harmed at all, right? The, Nebuchadnezzar sees them in there with a fourth figure, and we won't get into that. That's a whole other sermon. But they're in there in the furnace, walking around as if nothing's going on around them, like this giant fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, and he's got to deal with this now, like realizing, wow, this is crazy. Like, I've never seen something like this. And that no, no uh, hair on their head is singed, it says. Their clothes don't smell like smoke. They're not harmed in any way. And then we pick up the story here because of that. In Daniel 3.29, we read, Nebuchadnezzar saying, therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, 
and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so they stood up and they had this confidence in front of a king with the threat of death, burned by fire, which would not be an enjoyable way to go. And they stood, they stood firm. There was no wavering in their minds. And I asked myself, like, these, these young men are 1,600 miles from their home. They're in a foreign place. They've been re-educated. And they have, a, in a sense, an all-powerful ruler giving a very direct order to them. And they stand firm without hesitation. What leads to that kind of confidence for them to be able to stand up with that kind of a decision to make? And that's what I want to talk about today. What led them to be that confident, that sure of what's going on? But I think to understand it, we need to go back and see maybe some history of these men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to see in a second another one of their companions, Daniel, who's writing the book of Daniel. Uh, They were all men taken, and they were all uh, given... blessings by God to be able to, to have favor in this kingdom. And so they were uh, in the, learning the culture, learning the education, learning uh, all, uh, the customs, the languages, uh, the way that the politics works in Babylon, and they, they excelled above anybody else. And, and so they found favor uh, because God had given them favor in this. And so we're going to read about uh, another instance uh, early on when they had just come over. So this is like right away when they're still trying to get their feet on the ground, get their head stopped spinning from what has just happened. They've just been uprooted from what they have known their entire life, and now they're in a really weird place asked, being asked to do things that are not normal. And so in Daniel chapter 1, if you want to turn back to there, we're going to start in verse 8. And it says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine That he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who assigns your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And those are the Jewish names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are the names they were given when they got to Babylon. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh, and I love that phrase, fatter in flesh, not something we go to with our keto diets right now, and all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Again, right away in a weird place where they would have every reason to just go with the flow and go along with anything else, they were respectfully requesting that they be allowed to continue a diet that they had started in Jerusalem and, and not, in, in their words, defile themselves with the king's food. For whatever it was, it was against what they were, they were supposed to be eating. And so they respectfully ask, and God gives them favor, and they're able to stand up. And I don't know if it was miraculous or uh, it may be, and I, I, I tend to believe it may be, but they were in better health than those who were eating uh, full-course meals. And so I want to look at some of the lessons that we can learn from 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here? Like what led them to be able to stand so decisively in chapter 3? And the first thing that uh, I think we can understand is this, that it's impossible to follow a God we don't know. It's impossible to follow a God we don't know. We see already in chapter 1, definitely in chapter 3, that these young men knew their God. They didn't just start serving God when the fire got turned up or when things changed so dramatically and their world fell apart and they were taken into a foreign land. That wasn't when they had the idea, maybe we should take God seriously. They had been following God long before this. It was a pattern. It was a, 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 a habit in their life that they had developed so that they were able to stand with confidence at that moment. And it's not just about knowing God's word. They knew God. They had spent time understanding, studying, asking questions, finding answers, growing stronger in who this God is. God, for whatever reason, has chosen to reveal himself through the written word, not through videos, not through uh, podcasts, nothing like that. And we can learn truth from those, certainly. But God himself has revealed himself through the word. The word became flesh, we're told in the New Testament. So it's not just about reading the scriptures, but it's understanding and knowing the God who has breathed out these words. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel knew their God. Do you have a habit of spending time learning who this God is that we claim to follow? I know in my life, many times, I like the idea of following God but I don't like the hard work that goes into actually following that God. In chapter two, we see Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And we're not gonna read too much. uh, We're gonna read one one little verse or two from chapter two, but he has a dream and it's so disturbing to him that he he thinks it has meaning. Uh, And so he calls his advisors. He calls his closest uh, political friends and said, basically, I need to know what this dream means. But he does something kind of weird. He doesn't just say, can you interpret my dream? He says, I want to make sure you're not lying to me because maybe he suspected that they just told him what he wanted to hear, which if he's going to threaten to throw people in a furnace, maybe he's a little bit unpredictable. So they might have made something up just to appease him. He says, just so I know you're not making something up, I also want you to tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it means. And they're like, you are crazy. Um, my daughters and I, on the way to church, we come early to help set up, and we're driving in, and usually I have three or four of my daughters, and one of the things they love to do is share dreams that they had the night before, and they're crazy. Like Today, it dealt with cheese graters and things. I have no idea. Um, it's just fun to see what the imagination does in the mind, or the mind does with imagination. I'm not sure which way it goes. but So one thing we've never done, and it's fun to hear like what somebody's mind does overnight, right? But one thing we've never done is like, hey, Dad, do you want to hear my dream? Yeah, I do. Can you tell me what it is first? And then I'll tell you what it is. (laughs) Like, that's what King Nebuchadnezzar's doing. It's an impossible task, right? It's crazy. He's being absolutely insane. And so what he does is he gets frustrated that nobody who says that they, you know, have the inside with their gods, all these advisors around him, nobody can even come close to figuring out what this dream is. So King Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, well, I'm going to kill all of you. All of the advisors are going to be put to death if you can't tell me what the dream is and then tell me what the interpretation of it is. So this must have been a really, like, it must have made a really big impact on King Nebuchadnezzar. And so 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are some of the advisors to the king. So they're at risk here. And so when they go to arrest these men, this is what we read in Daniel 2, verse 17. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Remember, those are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just These are their Jewish names his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mysteries, this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So the first thing he does, Daniel goes back and he gets his buddies together and says, we need to seek God. We need to seek the mercy of God so that we won't die. So it's impossible to follow God when we don't know him. It's impossible to follow God we don't know. It's impossible to trust a God if we don't Spend time with him. As a result of Daniel's prayer and his friend's prayer, God reveals to Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which is an amazing thing. Think about that for a second. I had a dream. Do you know what it is? No, you don't. But if God told you that dream and, I, and you could tell me my dream without me telling you what it was, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to think that you are connected with God. And so God reveals it. And so uh, they are saved. All the other political leaders and advisors are saved, which is an amazing thing. When we want to respond and stand against the hunter's tactics in our lives, we need to seek God. We need to get his wisdom and his power and his understanding. We can't do it by ourselves. We like to think that we are capable alone, but we can't. We need to seek God and his strength. If we look at the life of Jesus... Jesus spent a little bit of time praying. Think about that. Jesus, who is God, prayed constantly. It's an important thing for us to take, take seriously. Like someone said it recently from the stage here, is a lot of times prayer is our, our backup plan. Prayer should be our very first, very first plan. It should be the thing we do immediately, like Daniel did with his friends. We can't do this on our own. Daniel had no idea what the dream was. Let's pray to God. Maybe he'll have mercy on us and, and save us. And he does. And he does it. And I can tell you the, the, the overriding story, this is kind of an aside, is God is calling Nebuchadnezzar into a relationship. And Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely a pagan God who doesn't want that. And God, through a series of actions, starts pulling Nebuchadnezzar towards him. And he's using it. So there's a reason all this is happening. You know, last week, we also learned that being in relationship with other people, that going at it alone, that if we have, we can resist the, the enemy's tactics through gospel-centered or Jesus-centered relationships. A lot of times we can fall. And the verse that, that was key there, if you remember back, Ecclesiastes 4.12, and it, and it says this, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord, threefold cord is not quickly broken. There is strength in numbers. And if you notice through this entire story, these four Hebrews stayed together. They had each other's back. They were concerned for one another. They watched out for one another. They didn't just do whatever was convenient for them so that they could be protected and excel in their new kingdom where they were serving. They stuck together. So it's impossible to follow a God we don't know. It's impossible to trust a God if we don't spend time with him. It's easier to stand strong when we're not alone. It's easier to stand strong when you're not alone. When I was a youth pastor 
and every youth pastor, you're going to play paintball and airsoft a lot. And one thing I learned with paintball, you know, simulated war basically, and so maybe some military can back me up here too, is one thing I know is the lone wolf usually dies really quick. It looks good in movies, but the reality is when you have somebody else, at least one other person with you, and sometimes more, you are far more successful uh, at airsoft and paintball. And I think in life in general is when we have others around us, we are stronger as a team than we are by ourselves. And the enemy knows that. He wants to separate us out, isolate us, get in our own head, and then he can start pushing us towards an edge. So what does this mean in our own life? Because the reality is that Satan, our enemy, our de- the deceiver, the hunter, is putting edges or decisions all around us that can destroy us. So what does this mean for our own life? Because even today, you're going to make decisions that may seem insignificant, but they're going to have lasting impact in your life. You may make major decisions today. You may be struggling right now with a decision that's in your life. And here's the truth one that we, I think we need to recognize is that we're never more than one or two decisions away from a devastating sin in our life. We're never more than one or two decisions away from devastating sin in our life. No matter how mature of a believer you are, no matter how strong of a person you are, no matter how many books you read, no matter how intelligent you are, you are never more than one or two bad decisions in your life from just making a train wreck out of it. All of us. We're all in that boat. And Satan knows that. We need to recognize that. And usually we're very vulnerable when we think everything's okay. I got this. I can handle this on my own. And the enemy wants us there. Sometimes we think that the the small decisions don't matter. Just the big ones, right? But the small and the big ones do matter. The little ones lead up to big decisions. The little decisions will will make it far easier for the enemy to push you near an edge of a big decision. A little lie, a simple careless word, an unchecked desire, an unanswered question in our faith, unchecked addiction or behavior in our lives. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal now. I've got it under control. It's exactly what the hunter wants you to think. You've got it under control. We don't. So how do we prepare to stand and fight? How do we resist so that we don't run up to that edge? that we can prepare for the battle long before we actually get to the test. Three simple things, and we've talked about them, but I'm gonna hopefully simplify them so you can remember them. You need to know God. You need to do more than a verse of the day or a chapter a day, just reading and checkbox. I'm a checkbox person, so this is really challenging to me. I am much more of I want the information. I like to process that. So I can read a lot about God. I can... can do the, the habit of reading scripture every day. And that, that's easy for me to think that I'm succeeding and I've missed it because I've missed the relationship side of being with God. I don't really know God. I know a lot about God and I need to spend time with God struggling with, I don't understand this passage. Why is this written like this? Why would God respond like this? And then finding those answers, memorizing scripture, getting it into my, my mind and I, it, letting it change who I am, meditating, thinking through what I'm reading, understanding it, truly understanding what is it saying about God? What is it telling me about myself? How is it encouraging me to interact with people around me knowing God? It's different. 
The second one is seek God. We need to seek God. So not only do we need to know God, we need to seek God. First thing Daniel and his, his companions did is pray, sought God. And it's not just, okay, we probably should do that and then we can start figuring out how to solve this problem. Daniel had no idea what King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was and the first thing he does is pray. Pray for the mercy of God. Through God's power, we can stand up to the enemy's temptation to walk towards an edge, towards a bad decision in our life that will undermine who we are. And the last thing we need to do is do it together. We need to lean into relationships with godly people around us. I'm a loner. I like, if my dream is to be out in the middle of nowhere by myself. My wife says I can't because I have five daughters. That's not gonna work. So, so here I am. But if left alone, I will drift from relationship. I will drift from community. And what I found is I can't stand strong there. I think I can. I think I'm stronger by myself, and I'm not. I need people to challenge me, to, to look into my heart and to push back and to help strengthen me when I'm, when I'm weak. And I believe you're a lot like me. If you are like me, it's easy to read the story of Daniel. And I get inspired. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And I get inspired by it because these are three men or four men who stood up in a respectful way to a king and we got to see God work mightily through them. They didn't cave in. They didn't have that end of life uh, like the David, like that sin that just like overshadowed some of what he, the good that he had done, right? These were men that just stood strong and they stayed away from that edge. And I get inspired by that and I go, yes. And then I make absolutely no change in my own life, right? I just walk away. And again, that's just reading scripture, not allowing it to change who I am. So here are the action steps. If you have your card with you, it's on the seat when you came in. And on the bottom, there's that little tearaway thing and you can put your information on there. And again, we say it all the time, but I'm gonna say it again. We're not gonna hound you. We're not gonna spam you with a bunch of stuff. We literally want to send you a text that just reminds you of the decision you made this week so that two or three days from now, you're reminded that, oh, I, I wanted to take a step and then I totally forgot about it and you get reminded again and hopefully that'll help you. You know, it helps me maybe refocus a little bit. So here they are. The first one is I'm choosing to put my faith in Jesus today. Without, without Jesus, really all this is is behavior modification and it's just, I'll be honest, it's gonna be a waste of time. You have to start with the very basic and that is to have that relationship with God, to be made right with God. Second thing is I'm choosing to spend time this week studying scripture. I'm gonna spend time asking the hard questions, looking into why does it say this? What is the cultural understanding around this? What does this say about the God I serve? What does this say about me? I'm choosing to seek God in the big and the little things. I'm choosing to seek God in the big and little things. We should be praying all day long. And if you're not, you're, you're putting yourself at, at, at an edge, a potentially downfall in your life. Little decisions, they do matter. The bigger decisions, they definitely matter. We should be got into those decisions from the get-go. I'm gonna share my struggles with a trusted believer. When was the last time you were honest from your heart with what you're truly struggling with? With someone else? We like to play our cards close to our chest, right? We don't want other people to know that we're actually struggling. So we give them just enough so that they think that we're actually in the battle, but we're not. We're kind of okay with our, with our struggle or we're drowning in our struggle and we don't know how to get it out. So I'm gonna challenge you to take that step. Share your struggle with a trusted believer. Allow them in. 
And I think you'll find that support. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your great love for us. Lord, I thank you. Examples in Scripture that we are able to see true humanity, Lord. Like we are a people that love to run up to an edge. And most of the time we just keep going. We think that we can stay safe there. And we just, we just want to see what the view is from there, Lord. But those decisions can come back and, and bite us so bad. Lord, thank you for the example of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Lord, and the, the example that they give us of a lifetime relationship with you and a trust that was built over many, many little decisions and seeing you work in little ways and big ways. And Lord, because of that, they were able to stand strong with confidence when it really mattered the most. Lord, help us to be a people that develop habits now that will pay off dividends later. One step at a time. Lord, help us to take a step towards you today. Take a step towards that confidence, Lord. Preparing for the test, realizing that it starts long before we actually get there. Lord, give us that confidence, that that strength. Help us to connect to you. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for watching this message from ACF Church. Uh, We hope it's encouraged you and challenged you to be more like Jesus and to walk with him in a closer and more profound way. If you'd like to give to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so at the link on the screen or at acfak.org. We love you and we'll see you next week.